1: Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, the best-selling comic novel by Maria Semple. I'm Dan Kois. I'm the editor at Slate Book Review. I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. And joining me here is Emily Bazelon, a Slate senior editor. Hi, Emily. Hey, Dan. And joining us from New York, we have Megan O'Rourke, a Slate culture critic. Hi, Megan. Hi. So as always, with the Audiobook Club, please, if you have not read the book and you are a person who cares about being spoiled for all the funny things that happen in a book, don't listen to us until after you read the book because we're going to talk about all those funny things. We're literally going to spoil every single thing that happened in this book. So there will be no surprises left if you don't read it first. Today, in our conversation, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but among other things, we'll talk about the dysfunctional family at the center of this book, about the unique form of the novel, which is sort of epistolary and sort of even beyond epistolary, about Bernadette's view of Seattle, the Emerald City. And then I really want to talk about with you guys how comic novels work in general and whether the bar for success is different or lower in a comic novel than it is in another kind of book. But let's start with this family, the Branch Foxes. Elgin, who's like a lead product manager at Microsoft. Really, he's like a guru at Microsoft. Bernadette, who is a one-time architect and MacArthur Genius Grant winner turned crazy mom, and their genius daughter, B. So they are the characters who we stick with through this novel. There are other characters who flit in and out, but they're the ones we start with and end with. And I found that I had very complicated feelings about all three of them. Was there one character, Megan, that you related to particularly in this book? Was there one character in that family who you find yourself latching onto? to?
2: Uh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, zero. There were zero characters.
2: So I think I am the person for whom the charms of this book just do not speak. <laughs> um, yeah. I know that people love this book. I read a lot of reviews online. I found it at times enjoyable enough, but I actually thought one of the problems of the book for me was that the characters felt really like concoctions. And it is a comic novel, so they're supposed to be to some degree. You know, this is not a work of kind of deep interiority. I'm not I'm not asking for that. But I actually thought that even functioning as they were supposed to function, these characters were full of contradictions that weren't the good kind of contradiction, but were kind of just like LG is one way, and then suddenly he's not, and then suddenly he is.
1: Well, talk about LG in particular. Like, what was it about him that you felt like didn't track for you?
2: I'm more interested in Bernadette and B, if I'm interested in any of them. And and I have to out myself as a a kind of lover of the genre of the novel narrated by the precocious child slash teenager. That is one of my favorite of of books to read. Mine too. But I actually felt like there wasn't enough of B in here. When B was in here, that was probably my favorite part. And then Bernadette is a kind of character I'm really interested in because as a poet and artist, I'm drawn to kind of eccentric women figures. You know, so she's this kind of crazy mom who, you know, as you said, was a former architectural genius, you know, somewhat funnily calls all the other moms at the school gnats and does eccentric things. And LG, at the beginning of the book, I was just like, "Oh my god, this is the most Accommodating husband I have ever come <laughs> in the face of in the world, the known universe. You know, he just seems to be this like hard hitting. Like we're supposed to think he had the fourth most watched TED talk, right? So he's this kind of intense, hard hitting guy. You know, albeit he works in Seattle and Microsoft, so that's a different kind of hard hitting than like the New York hard hitting. But he just seems to be totally fine with the fact that their house is apparently like a molding,
0: mildewy... No, no. More than that, Megan. It's literally falling down around <laughs> them. Falling apart, It's, them. it's a collapsing disaster. It's a collapsing disaster <laughs> right. and never says anything and that his wife sort of doesn't
2: really seem to talk to him and he just seems fine with all that until suddenly he's really not fine and then suddenly he's fine again and so that part of the book, which is which is the arc of the book, really made no sense to
0: me, <laughs> I have to say.
1: What about you, Emily? I
0: know. I'm going to defend that part of it. I mean, I really had fun reading this book, partly because I read it on an airplane, which I think is essentially what it's designed for. It's like the perfect throwaway airport novel. I was so pleased because you announced we were going to read this book. And I was literally on my way to the airport. That's and then right. there really it was on the shelf. Or exactly. <laughs> right. It was just perfect. So I had fun reading it, but my defense of it is not going to address any of Megan's acute criticisms, <laughs> because I think that essentially you have to enjoy it as light, social, satire, and parody, and admire the innovative form, like the use of emails and, you know, notes home from the principal and the other things, and the kind of zaniness of it without asking for depth and consistency from most of the characters. I think I was more taken with Bernadette, maybe, than you were, Megan, in the sense that we don't know in the beginning that she's a MacArthur genius, and we know something bad happened to her in L.A., where they used to live, but we don't know what it was. And I thought that mystery unfolded in an interesting way, and that her weirdness, while it was completely overblown, and, you know, she's, like, refused to produce anything ever in 20 years. It all has that kind of overwrought quality. There was something going on about, you know, the frustrations of being someone who considers herself an artist who has been thwarted and then channels all her energy into parenthood that I felt like resonated in some way I could sort of recognize. That makes sense.
1: But it's interesting. I mean, we'll talk, I think, I hope a little bit later about to what standard we hold a novel like this? The novel, I think, holds itself to a different standard than you're holding it to, Emily. I think the novel definitely hopes to have more things to say about the emotional connection between a mother and a daughter, for example, than you necessarily saw in it if you read it as essentially a straight, like, airport comic reading. So did meant you to think totally disposable. the
0: mother daughter connection is pure and full of love and withstands every assault? It's completely. Perfect. I mean, one of the climactic moments in the novel, Bernadette utterly antagonizes another woman who has a son in B's class. This woman whose name is Audrey, who's sort of a foil for Bernadette, although in the end they're like two peas in a pod, which is a little too pat for me. But Bernadette does this completely insane thing that causes a huge mudslide that ruins Audrey's house. It's all very dramatic. Well, and... that's
1: not Bernadette's fault. That's Audrey's fault.
0: <laughs> really? I, feel like I
2: could I could imagine
0: doing what Bernadette did.
2: There. <laughs> I did feel sneaking sympathy. All right.
0: Well, okay. But anyway, in this crazy moment in which Audrey's attacking Bernadette and B is there, B totally sides with Bernadette yes. in this way that made me think like, oh God bless her, what a loyal daughter. And yet in real life, that kid would have been really embarrassed by what her mother had done and would have had some ambivalence about it.
1: It's like, as an eighth grader, it is hard to imagine an eighth grader as perfect as B. Like, the book actually begins with her report yeah. card. Although, it's a straight we, A's. Can
0: we take a moment to uh, – I think we do have to give Semple, Maria Semple, the author, credit for that report card and yes. any other – right? Because, yes, I mean, totally. I have to say my younger son and my older son in his time go to a crunchy granola little sweet school <laughs> in which there are no A's, B's, C's, and D's. There is I just, went to one
2: too. Right. There's like
0: M, S, and, you know, E right. or whatever, and they don't stand for D, developing.
1: It surpasses excellence, achieves excellence. <laughs> or working towards excellence. Exactly. Those are the three possible grades at the Gaylor Street School. She's a
2: good social satirist. And Emily, you know, Dan, this was before your time, but Slate, you know, was once owned by Microsoft. So I have some memories of working in that Microsoft building, you know, complex in Seattle. And there's a real accuracy to some of that satire.
1: So I did really latch on to Bernadette. She is over the top and she is like bananas for substantial portions of this book. But I agree with you, Emily, that one of the richest parts of the book for me was, like, the unveiling of the mystery of what the bad thing was that happened to her in Los Angeles 20 years ago, Which
0: before. was interestingly bad, Which right? was
1: interesting. And so, like, that whole section, yeah. actually, yeah. the whole section about her architectural career and about the the first house that she makes and then the 20-mile house that she builds and the huge fight she gets in with her neighbor, like, I found that. A pretty actually amazing bit of writing for one simple reason, which is that I've read like a zillion books in which someone is supposed to be a genius at in some particular field, and I almost never believe it. But I legitimately believe that any human being who had done those things would have gotten a MacArthur Genius Grant under exactly those circumstances. Like that seemed totally legitimate to me.
0: And just to capture it, essentially, she is 20 years ahead of her time in the whole kind of enviro green buildings. Yes,
1: movement. She and builds using an, found materials. Right. She uses, and it's awesome. builds an entire house out of materials that are sourced from no more than 20 miles away from the like Los Angeles hillside where she is building it. And so. In some ways, like, I loved that part. In other ways, it frustrated me because it sort of led me to the question of, well, why is this so little of this book? Like, it's so little of the book because the emotional arc of the book for Bernadette is that she falls away from this work due to her own personal problems and her frustrations with the process of the 20-mile house and its destruction. And then the book is about her, like, getting her mojo back, sort of. But it also made me feel like, in much the same way that Bernadette's architectural genius is wasted in 20 years of dealing with gnats in Seattle. I sort of felt like the book's possible genius was wasted by only giving us 15 pages about her architectural genius. Like, I would have been so happy to have, like, an entire novel about the entire career of Bernadette, genius, crazy architect who overturns everything we thought we believed. I don't know, maybe Marie Semple... Maybe she completely maxed out her ideas about architecture and then she was like, well, I guess that's all I got.
0: Well, I also think she's interested in something else, which I would agree with you is less interesting, <laughs> which is this back and forth between these women and the, particularly the mothers at the school. I mean, there are tons of kind of, you know, fatuous, silly emails between Audrey and another mom named Sue Lynn who becomes LG's admin assistant and lover. And that... Writing takes up a lot of space in the book a and it's pretty predictable. A
1: lot of space. A lot the book.
2: of space. Yeah. And then between uh, su lin and Audrey, oh my god. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I just was like, we get the picture. I mean I understand the whole book is about reversals, like everyone isn't quite who you think they are. It really felt like in that way and I and I you know, I wanna give Maria some credit. I mean it was a it was sort of enjoyable, frothy she's clever. She's written for what Arrested Development and other places. I mean, she has a, a comic bone in her body and clearly I'm just not the right person for this. But one of the reasons I wasn't was that I just feel like everything was so tidally set up and there was nothing really at stake. Like, as you say, LG and this woman become lovers and Bernadette's just kind of like hurt by that sort of, but then I was like, well, now we're back together. I don't know.
0: Right. She was like, "Well, oh. oh, I'll chase her away. It won't be. A... She really does treat like, like a, a mat. Yeah, so then I'm like, man.
2: why did you need to go to the, you know, Antarctic? Like... <laughs> I don't really understand.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, the other thing, Megan, I was wondering about is that, This kind of social satire about affluent moms and private schools, it's pretty familiar at this point, right? I mean, is there really new ground treaded here? Like, we all know that there is this ridiculous side to these communities that we, if we're part of them, participate in. And, you know, I'm glad that no one has ruined my house in a mudslide, but I have certainly (laughs) had my moments of finding, you know, other parents frustrating in this, like, extremely first world problem way.
2: That must be part of the popularity of this book, right? And I think that you guys are right that Bernadette, you know, obviously people really connected to Bernadette. I mean, one thing I was really interested in is how this book became such a huge success and how many people love this book, because really people love this book. And it seems to be a big book club book. And it kind of makes sense that I think, you know, for a lot of women, Bernadette is kind of giving voice to this kind of repressed self within, right? You know,
1: it's like the Michael who... Douglas falling down of yeah, private exactly.
0: school moms. Exactly. And everyone wants and, to and imagine moms themselves. Yeah. 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 And you yeah. whatever mom you actually are in that world, you want to imagine you're the rebel, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Or you at least want to
2: be like, I will be, I could be, right? Right. And even if you don't quite imagine yourself like Bernadette, you've certainly been in this kind of relationship to other moms, right? So that seems like that is what this book for example a lot of the book was about and I think for readers what a lot of the book was about. Dan, I'm with you. Like I would love to have read the book you're describing because that would have been much more interesting to me. And a book that actually, you know, was comedic and, and did have a certain lightness to it, but kind of investigated these questions more seriously and investigated the question you know, of what it is to be this kind of brilliant girl child.
0: Of this crazy mom and you know, this, like, That's dad.
2: really interesting, you know. And I kept thinking of um, special topics in Calamity Physics. Did mm. either yeah. of you guys think yeah. of that? Yeah. Which, it was not a book that I actually loved. I wrote a pretty negative piece about that book in, in Slate years ago. But I just thought this book made me really respect things that that book had done.
1: You're right, Emily, that it's familiar ground, the satire of um, crunchy schools. But this book really does peg it in ways that i did find like deeply enjoyable like i do want to read i want to read one section from the book from page 50 about galen street school this is in b's voice this is one of the sections that she narrates and she's talking about how her mom had to pick her up early one day from school the thing i mainly felt bad about was that i wouldn't get to tutor at homework lab the fourth (laughs) graders were doing a debate and i was helping them prepare their class was studying china and the debate was going to be pro and con chinese occupation of tibet have you ever heard of such a thing? Gaylor Street is so ridiculous that it goes beyond PC and turns back in on itself to the point where fourth graders are actually having to debate the advantages of China's genocide of the Tibetan people, not to mention the equally devastating cultural genocide. I wanted them to say that one of the pros was that Chinese occupation is helping with the world food shortage because there are fewer Tibetan mouths to feed. But Mr. Lauderstein overheard me and told me I'd better not dare. But I did love like this picture of a school that bends. Over so far backwards to accommodate every worldview that they become utterly ridiculous. Like, I loved that moment. And the book is full, as you say, Megan, of very sharp, incisive bits of social satire, especially about Seattle, right? And so if you were a person who lived in Seattle...
0: It's the love-hate book about Seattle.
1: What is... Where is the love... Where is the love of Seattle in this book? In
0: in all of the biting and complaining about the weather and all the things. So, So
1: Maria Semple is the subject of a profile in the Times a couple of years ago when this book started blowing up by Julie Bosman. And it like talks about how sharp the satire of Seattle is in this book. That amazing line about how there are two hairstyles in Seattle: short gray hair and long gray hair or all the riffs about craftsman houses and how awful they are and And now
0: it's the only option
1: right yes it's the only option and so there's this basically an entire piece about how much maria semple hates seattle she leads with her going it's just not a funny place i would just drive all around seattle and all i would do is just think about how awful seattle was and then it ends the last paragraph is oh i'm starting to like a lot of things about seattle (laughs) now i love it here and i can't imagine living anywhere else I don't believe that Maria Semple really loves it in Seattle and can't imagine living anywhere else.
0: She can imagine living anywhere else. Right. Imagined, right. <laughs> Back in L.A.
1: Right. And so I guess it's not a big deal. And, and I don't mind that a book viciously attacks a city. But it is funny to me that Seattle seems not to be particularly angry at Maria Semple, even though Maria Semple still seems really angry at Seattle. And,
2: you know, the thing I'm most interested in about this book is it as a cultural phenomenon. You know, I mean, you know, there are a lot of entertaining books out there. This is entertaining. But what's really interesting to me about this book is that I feel like Maria Semple has sort of embodying this book, the same kind of attitude toward a lot of her readers that you've just described her having toward Seattle, which yes. is like, that. there's actually this kind of distaste or dislike Contempt. for... Yeah, for probably the kind of person that a lot of her readers are. I mean, whatever. This is a very meta reading. I'm sure it's totally unfair. No, but, I think... but I really felt that in the book, too, on some level. Like, the whole book felt really fake to me. It just didn't... I couldn't figure out where the heart was. Well... And, you know i do like a lot of like light comedic things but i just couldn't figure out what what we were supposed to anyway the way really in which doing. I
0: really felt what you're feeling had to do with the characterizations of Audrey and Su Lin, mm-hmm. these other yeah, mothers, yeah. who are total exactly. cartoons. And they're horrible cartoons, they are monsters, each in their own women. monstrous way. They mistreat their own children. They're utterly selfish. Audrey's partial redemption makes no sense. You know, Su right. Lin, <laughs> whatever her name is, has this awful fascination with being a victim and the whole sort of language of victimhood that is completely upsetting and awful. And that part of the book was the part that made me cringe as I was reading. The other characters, the problems with them, they at least, like, had something you could grab onto, whereas those two women were just so flat and awful.
1: And they turn on a dime, as you say. Like it actually the two sections where they each like change their tune happen right next to each other.
0: And it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. yeah and so it's first it's we've learned that Audrey completely changed her tune and helps Bernadette. And then one page later we learn that Sue Lynn has like done this ruthless self-evaluation and determined that everything she believed was a lie. And neither of those sold. But I guess this comes to like sort of a greater question that I have about the book, which is neither of those transformations sold, but the book continued being funny for me. All the way through, like, often very funny. In fact, the Su Lin's, like, totally absurd self story had what I believe to be the single funniest paragraph in this entire book, which I'm going to read to you because I loved it so much. It's on page 247, and it is in the middle of Su Lin's W-Y-P, which is a (laughs) write your part. It's pronounced weep, not wipe. And she's talking about the magical evening when she and Elgin finally made love and the events leading up to it and they're at a hotel and they're in the bar drinking tequila, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden in the middle of everything there's this paragraph. A singer named Morrissey was staying at the hotel and a group of ardent young homosexuals had gathered, hoping for a glimpse. They were carrying Morrissey posters, records, boxes of chocolate. Love was in the air. Just that paragraph and the total the total obliviousness that it represents on the part of this character was both really funny, but also like somewhat troubling and that it suggests what a fatuous person suwin actually is i guess the question is am i wrong to be feeling like there's a disparity between the seriousness with which this book thinks it's treating like these emotional issues at the heart of this family and even the characters that it's satirizing the lesser characters that it's satirizing and the fact that it doesn't seem to have achieved that or am i just asking too much out of what is essentially like a light comic novel no. do you guys think it means to be more than a light comic novel
2: no it doesn't
0: need to be more than a light comic novel i mean but well i don't, I know. don't I mean... think it means to be i'm not sure maria semple it mean would dis- to be yeah mean yeah, to yeah. Be. i don't oh, think oh. maria semple would disagree that these are flat and two-dimensional people she's created for these two characters and i think the reason that they're Obvious flaws don't either make the book stop being funny and have not diminished the book's appeal. Is that we are happy to laugh at them. They're the goats for everything in our kind of precious culture that we already know we're supposed to object to and are happy to distance ourselves from.
1: But even if we sort of are them, like.
0: Especially if we sort of are them because we're not them, right? I mean, no matter who you are, you are not the mom who, you know, makes up that another mom ran over your foot. Right? And yeah. is in such denial about your son's drug abuse that, like, yeah. you, you know, rip the hair off the head of the hotel manager who opens oh. the door to the room <laughs> yeah. where he's smoking pot with his friends. This
2: part all gave me such an icky feeling. Oh.
0: <laughs> you know, it I made me
2: really wonder, Dan, if... My sort of inner monologue as I was reading the book was like, oh, I don't really like this book. And then like, oh, so many people like this book. Like, And then I was like, oh, I'm too serious. I want too many things from a novel. And I was like, oh, culture, <laughs> is, are too high. culture is, you know, <laughs> headed toward the trash bin. Like, and then why do people think this is a good novel? Why do I not think it's a good novel? Like, I really, you know, I kind of wanted to struggle with, because there was something really depressing to me about this novel, to be honest, and and really depressing to me about its popularity. But I don't really just want to be that, you know, kind of. It might be as simple as the humor didn't appeal to me, right? So I didn't want to be that kind of snobby reader who's like, why do people like this? It really did make me start to think about questions of genre and questions of what is the comedic novel supposed to do, but also what has happened to the comedic novel in the age of comedic television? you know? And, and obviously this question is in my mind, partly because I knew that Maria Semple had been a TV writer. And I kept thinking about whether if I saw these characters on a show like Arrested Development, some of the moments in the book might have seemed really funny and kind of scabrous and dark to me. Whereas in the book, because you have the semblance of thinking through everything, right, and this is kind of compiled in retrospect in some way by B to give something away, there was something about using the email. I mean, you know, part of the seeming shallowness that i was responding to and that you guys are responding to in the kind of characterization is comes from the fact that you know the book does have this radical form right it uses so many emails and it uses found documents right so we're not kind of getting narration but anyway i really was thinking about this as a kind of like a, a tv writing as novel
1: i think that that makes sense and it's very set piece oriented and it does present a lot of characters doing things that If someone just said some of these things out loud, I think I might be better able to simply laugh at it and then immediately move on to the next moment. And the
0: characters in Arrested Development are a lot like these people. They are totally hateful and really funny. Not (laughs) Right? And you spend some of your time simply feeling superior to them. I mean, I do think it's all an invitation to smugness. But just sometimes that's, like, satisfying, right?
2: And I did think the of Development was really funny. So, like, why does that not trouble me? But this did. I mean, and I don't have the answer to that question yet. I mean, I think it was better than this.
1: <laughs> There's a very different experience living inside a book for the amount of time it takes you to read a book than it is watching a 22-minute TV show. You are always on the outside of a TV show looking in through a window, right? And the whole point of a book is it's immersal in that world. And even in a book... In which the world is created on surfaces in epistolary form, like this one, you're still encouraged to sink into those voices and into those heads. And you're not encouraged to do that in the TV. In and
0: you TV don't show. have the actors nudge, nudge, wink, winking at you in a book the way you do on a TV screen.
1: Although there's very little nudge, nudge, wink, winking in like an arrested development. Like that's not the. And
0: not overtly, true. but I mean, you don't take it seriously. But this book yeah. is
2: also more sincere, right? I mean, the relation, as you're pointing out, Emily, the relationship between B and Bernadette is a is a kind of like pure as pure can be kind of relationship. I mean, it's funny to go back to your question, Dan. I mean, I think there are novels like Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos, which are, you know, kind of a romp, right? But there is a gravity to it in terms of the, you know, it feels like the point of view, the way the satire is aimed kind of amounts to something in a way that this never quite did for me.
1: Is it just because we don't care about seattle Seattle, like
0: but see i actually feel like i don't live in seattle but i live in new haven connecticut i mean it's like a lame east coast but also rainy little city and there were things about this that were very familiar to me so i do think there's a sort of like regional provincialism that this book is sending up that probably resonates with a lot of people
2: and she's very good at that yeah one thing i did admire about this book and i think i feel like i'm being very harsh on the book and i actually think maria semple has a lot of talent i just didn't quite find it actualized in this book, but she's very good at getting everyday so much of the texture of our lives today into the book, like all the Microsoft stuff and kind of just emails and the way TED Talks worked. And it just, it did feel like there was a lot of the detritus of our everyday lives in this novel.
1: I really had a pleasurable sensation that she is paying attention in a way that I get the sense that a lot of other novels aren't paying attention even a little bit.
0: Right. The trip to Whole Foods and the whole idea that someone's looking in your cart and you feel pleased at what they're noticing. I thought that
2: part of it was really good. And there's just like a kind of part of the culture in this book that I really enjoyed having exposure to in a novel. And I thought, yes, more novelists should should write about this stuff.
1: So let's do talk about the form a little bit more, because the form of this novel is really interesting. As you mentioned, Megan, it's sort of epistolary, but it also brings in a bunch of sort of primary source or found documents. Come to understand as the book goes on that it's the it's B collecting all these things some of them she's been supplied by other characters some of them she's collected on her own and then some sections of the book are just written in the first person in B's voice and there was a real tension at times i thought especially in the scenes where like really intense emotional material is being dealt with and the naturally comic form of some of the ways that this stuff was presented and the scene where i really felt it the most was The intervention scene where the intervention is presented as a transcript and notes from this like hapless, totally incompetent intervention counselor who doesn't actually even remember how to do this kind of intervention. But it also is an intense emotional argument between LG and Bernadette about what has their entire marriage come to. And I think that was the scene where my discomfort with the book sort of came to a head because there would be them saying these horrible things to each other and Bernadette breaking down and crying. And then the crying would actually be presented as, in parentheses, sound of crying. And then, you know, the intervention counselor would be like, I don't remember what comes next. What do we do next? Waka waka. And I found it really, (laughs) like, so at odds with each other. And I found myself a little bit confused by that response because I think that's the kind of disparity that I would typically really enjoy. Like, the introduction of darkness into total lightness is something that I usually really love. But I'm not sure Mm -hmm. why it made me so uncomfortable Well, they were
0: talking about involuntary commitment and it's that part of the book, just that phrase is weighty and doesn't have the sort of like, oh, that sent her off to the loony bin Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, lightness that might have gotten an intervention like this across. Mm -hmm. You know, it felt like the stakes were actually really high. I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking too much like a lawyer. But once that came up, I was like... All right.
1: Well, the stakes were (laughs) really really high at that point, weirdly high. high.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I thought more was going to be made of that because, you know, that was really where I thought this book was going, you know, because it said, where'd you go? And it had this lightness that I was like, okay, something has to counterbalance the lightness. And I really thought something really disturbing was going to happen. And the most disturbing part was exactly, as you say, Dan, that part of the book, which was the part of the book that was the most interesting to me. Like, I I agree with you. I had that discomfort, and I feel like the form, and that's the essential maybe kind of uncertainty in this book is about how serious it wants to be. And I felt like it kept doubling back away from its own moments of gravity, and yet it would include them. And that was what I just found puzzling about it, ultimately.
1: Megan, as someone who really likes books in the voices of precocious characters, did you warm to the book? Because basically the entire third act of the book is in B's voice. It drops the epistolary, basically. And that entire trip to Antarctica is in her voice. Did you find yourself liking her more or buying that voice
2: well i like b's voice i do think that was potentially you know a good part of the novel but no not i didn't think that part of the book worked particularly well because it was so plotted and plotted Mm. i mean i actually thought it was poorly plotted in the sense there was a lot of laborious exposition i knew exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen and it was sort of like putting the pieces in place and letting them take so long like if this were read in a script room there would have been a lot of you know efficacious cutting and i thought it needed that
1: she's only in eighth grade megan she I can't know, be a poor as B.
2: Yet. I mean but she got A's on her report cards. I mean that was a pretty, S's, you know. S's. She got S's, S's, I'm sorry. It's supposed to be a
0: publishable novel. The whole conceit is that she's written this brilliant novel at the age of 13.
2: You know, many of my favorite parts of the book were of B sort of intruding a little bit. And and as you say, the parts of Bernard, I mean there's something very pleasurable about this woman who's a gadfly in, in the way that we all sort of wish we were at times, right? Am I using that right? Is gadfly what I mean? You know what I mean. I believe He's gadfly saying, I is what
1: you think that was mean. fine, yeah. Yeah. yes. So Semple in this profile in the Times said that she basically started writing the whole book in Bernadette's voice, but that she got really frustrated by the voice and thought that there was too much rage in there.
2: See, that's where she should have written. That's what I think too. Yeah, so that's why it
1: ended up being an epistolary book with so many different voices. And there's fun in those different voices. But The long sections in this book, whether it's in B's voice or whether it's that long, amazing letter that Bernadette writes to her old architectural colleague, or even, like, the long section in Audrey's voice where she's explaining how it was that she rescued Bernadette. Like, it's unconvincing, but it's very vivid. That voice becomes vivid in that long section where it has a chance to breathe. It did make me wish that. Like, I totally would have been happy if she had just written the whole thing in Bernadette's voice or half Bernadette and half B, I don't know like that I it would have been a totally different novel it would not have felt as much like sort of a series of great gags executed one by one lined up in that sort of I guess in a way that is very appropriate for TV that 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 is the way you organize a a TV show, and that's the way you organize a book like this, where you're trying to use each individual document as a way of satirizing a specific kind of voice. And And,
0: you know, in all fairness, it makes the book very readable. It's broken up into all these little pieces. Yeah. You can kind of admire one polished gem after another or argue with it. And the end of the paperback has a Shouts and Murmurs piece from The New Yorker that Semple did that has nothing to do – Literally. literally with the book but has everything to do with the posture of the book and her sensibility and i didn't make the connection that she re- was the writer until i read it and i remember remembered that piece because it's hilarious mm. and it's a send-up of exactly the sort of like private school political correctness you know gone totally nuts that a lot of the book is talking about
1: if you just think of this novel as a whole series of, of varyingly successful shouts and murmurs pieces it's great like the hit yeah. rate of these sections is way higher than the hit rate of shouts and murmurs. And absolutely,
2: it's very readable for sure. I can see why so many people read it.
1: Have you figured out in the course of this conversation why so many people love it? Because people do really people aren't just buying this book; they are loving this book. Like not just in Seattle, where they're so open-hearted and generous that they love someone who viciously makes fun of and.
0: I really think it appeals to our superiority complexes and that if you're dealing in a kind of insular community where people see their children as very precious and you're in a like a companionate marriage, as I think they're still called, and mm-hmm. you're sort of striving away in your provincial town, there is something very familiar about the book. You can admire the sharpness of the satire and then you can also convince yourself that you would never behave in the monstrous <laughs> ways that the bad characters are behaving. You are not the mom Ma Mafia.
2: Yeah, and I also think that probably one reason people like it is it doesn't make a lot of demands on you as a reader at the same time as it reassures you that you're kind of connected to cleverness in some way right? i do or, wonder
0: when people talk about it in their book clubs what exactly they're talking about and maybe that's ridiculous since we just talked for 45 minutes yeah. there are many things to talk about <laughs> but if you loved the book yeah you know what would you talk about with other people who love the book i don't know i, mean,
2: I think the structure i think that was something that people probably talk about and then i do think the mother-daughter relationship and the marriage i mean obviously like in my i read it on kindle and um there was like a set of book club questions at the end that had to do with like, why is it told this way? And why you know, do you relate to Bernadette or not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sort of surprised, actually. I mean, this is a publishing decision that was made somewhere down the line, maybe by her agent, but I'm sort of surprised that this wasn't published if this was a YA novel, I think I would feel totally different about oh, it. Oh,
0: I don't think it's YA at all. It's you don't think really so? mostly from Bernadette's point of view. Oh, no, it's if mostly B, from B's point I of know, it. but B is really it does channeling. Feel very adult. Yeah. And yeah. the obsessions of the book are very grown up obsessions, right?
2: It's... Somewhat. I understand what you're saying, Dan. And part of me is like, yeah, that would solve a lot of problems. I really wonder
0: what kids would make of it. It If I was 13 and I read
1: this book, I would be like, oh, my God, this is what adults are really like. I'm going to give it to my
0: 14-year-old and see what he says. The reason I
1: ask is because the one book that this really reminded me of, though I liked it significantly less, than this book, which is the book of my life, is The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin.
0: Oh, interesting. Um because that is a it's like book. it's like a
1: it's like a panoply of voices. There's a a puzzle. There's a puzzle. There's a girl at its core who is like smarter than everyone else but struggling with that. But also, it really is, I feel like for a teenage or tween reader, this book could function the same way the Westing game really functioned for me as like this like key to unlock the way that adults actually think when we never knew that stuff before we never knew how like shallow and awful adults could be but that they were basically Mm. good at heart and that's essentially what this book is about as well. All the bumbling that you Mm -hmm. don't
0: realize when you're a kid. That's so interesting, and it makes me want to go reread The Westing Game.
1: Which is the greatest book of all time. Yeah,
2: which, you know, I've never read, and I remember everyone being obsessed with when I was a kid, Ah. so I will go reread it now.
1: (laughs) If our listeners take one thing away from this discussion of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, it's go read The Westing Game. So I feel (laughs) terrible because Maria Semple is super nice and gave me a bunch of really great quotes for a story that I did one time. (laughs) <laughs> and I laughed so many times during this book, but in the end, like, I do think that I don't quite get why this book is so wildly popular when other equally funny but better books are not wildly popular. But I also yeah. will totally read the next thing Maria Semple writes. I go, I don't I know about I.
0: the equally funny. I mean, I do think this book, she's for all its funny. flaws, is funny.
1: Yeah. But yeah, lots no, of books are funny.
0: She's funny. Really? She's got
2: yeah. a mad cap. You don't think No, so? I agree. No. That, that's my <laughs> question, too. But I totally believe that she could write a book I would really want to read. This just wasn't quite that book for me.
1: Well, thank you guys for joining me for Where'd You Go, Bernadette? A program note. Our next Audiobook Club selection is Jenny O'Phil's Department of Speculation.
0: Do you love how Dan now decides these things without even telling us in advance? I, I, uh, I have to be part of that conversation. I'm obsessed with
2: that book. I, I knew made. that uh. Megan would be totally on board.
1: <laughs> Tough luck, Bazelon.
2: Uh,
1: I also I am obsessed to... with this book and really want to talk about it. So this. Is oh, my God. I fun.
2: was about to say to you, we should do Department of Speculation or Siri Hustved. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I just finished it yesterday.
1: So Megan O'Rourke is excited. You listeners should get excited, too. <laughs> Uh, read the book or listen to it and join us for our discussion on May 9th. You the even home-
0: picked the date. Oh, no, that's not the date we have to tape. It's no, okay. No. <laughs>
1: Emily, I will expect you in the studio on May 7th at 1 p.m. See you then. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Please visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. You can just search for the Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. Don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Dan Kois. Thanks for listening.